Welcome to the Mike Unwatched Podcast. I am your host, Mike Veerman, and I am here with my friend and trusty producer, Max Kerman. Max, what's up? I'm feeling pretty somber today. Yeah. Last night uh, was the U.S. presidential election. How you doing, Mike? I'm still trying to contextualize it. It's, I will say it's been a... There's a couple things going on in my mind. It's like, oh, I'm frightened for how things are going to proceed, and obviously Trump has represented a lot of the worst in that, that he can bring out in people. But then a part of me is like... It'll be four years of a politician. There's a lot of safeguards in place. Or maybe I'm being naive. Yeah, it's really hard to tell. That That is a good point, and I think a sober point to bring up, because the reason why it feels like it's so consequential is because the media has been covering this election for the last two and a half years. And if there was... And I know America is a superpower, and I know that's the most important job in the world, so I'm not downplaying that at all. But there is there are those safeguards in place. There, There are, you know congressmen and senators who don't do anything anyway and they didn't do anything for obama's loss mm-hmm. so um like and and you know the pro- they're republicans too though because yeah. they have the senate and they have the house so in theory he'll be able to get a lot done i mean this is why everyone's so scared and so bummed out to me the most sort of bewildering part of it all is that trump doesn't really stand for anything and so and it's so unknown like if if Ted Cruz had been elected, you would have known what we're all getting ourselves into or Marco Rubio or John Kasich or Hillary Clinton or Bernie Sanders. You, you'd have a sense of like what these people stand for. These people have been running generally on a platform for the last three decades. All, all of those people I just mentioned. Trump literally donated to Planned Parenthood a year ago. Yeah. You know, like he voted Democrat. That to me is the most fascinating thing. And to me, it's like if, if he's prodded in the wrong direction, then it could be a really terrifying time for people. But if the right person also has his ear, he could, I don't I can see him totally abandoning what the Republican Party, what a lot of his Republican colleagues would want him to do. It totally going to the center. Yeah. So it's I don't know. I mean, and maybe that's totally naive of me, too. But I just but I, one thing I'm certain of is that he doesn't really stand for anything. And that just makes the whole thing very unknown to me. There's a perverse sort of, this is going to be interesting. I, let's see how this turns out. And so there is a bit of that, but it's completely tempered with the fact that there's a lot of people that are really hurting today that feel like their way of life and a lot of progress they've made, um, is going to be either completely reversed or their life is going to become exponentially more difficult going forward. The thing that makes me so bummed out about it is that like, I know there's there's a contingent of people that just want to see shit get blown up. and But I always thought, going into this, I'm like, well, but, like, the truth will prevail. And not, I'm not saying that Hillary Clinton is the truth, but, like, there's no way that we'll actually elect Donald Trump. This guy was literally on yeah. Celebrity Apprentice, like, three years ago. This is not Ronald Reagan, who was an actor decades ago, and then he spent, I think Reagan spent some time, like, as a politician before he ended up running for election. This guy literally was like the butt of the joke at like the 2000, what, 12, yeah, US, the, uh, the White House Correspondents' Dinner. People say that's where it started. That's where it started. Yeah, it's just, it's like, I just don't believe it, like that that it's gone this far. Have you ever, I haven't had a day like this in a long time, like, per, like personal stuff aside, where it was like something happened in the world and just like the air got sucked out of the room. Like I didn't want to go to bed this morning. Like this last night I was watching this, the, the CNN with Lauren and I was just like, this is making me so depressed. And like, I we was like, let's watch something else. And we couldn't really keep our focus on anything. Have you, did you, first of all, did you feel that way, Mike? And have you remembered a day like this? It's the weirdest day that I can think of where like, I mean, I didn't want to call it a pop culture event, but I mean, kind of is. for us, yeah, yeah. I, no, it's it's very, very weird. Um, Danica sort of had people over to watch the election last night. Yeah, there was supposed to be like a joy. And we thing. thought it was going to, you know, Hillary was going to be nominated and Dan's really sort of been into the idea of Hillary. And I found like, yeah, I woke up this morning. I actually went to bed at 1230 last night before they had called uh, Michigan or Wisconsin or Pennsylvania. And so there was kind of like that thing, like a basketball game where it's like, we're down eight with 30 seconds left. And it's like, maybe if you get a three and a steal wake and a up three, in the morning. <laughs> I'll wake up and it's like, holy shit, they came back. Awesome. And I had to go to bed because I had to be up. I was on a 620 bus and I looked at my, my phone and it was that picture on CNN of Trump's sort of like scowl and it just said President Trump. And I was like, there you have it. And I got on the bus and I just, I, I, was, I took longer in the shower this morning. There was a malaise and all around the office there was, I mean... I mean, this is what I was talking about off the top, though. It's like, I don't know. Are we being too dramatic or am I not being dramatic enough? 
Should I be completely terrified or like bummed out? Because that's what a lot of people were around the, around the office today. And there was just a kind of a weird energy all around the city, like on the bus. And it was early in the morning. Everyone was on their phones and laptops. It was still dark out. And everybody's uh, screens were Trump and presidential news. And there was just kind of an eerie silence. And I don't know if I've never experienced a day quite like this. And it's like, oh, geez, it's like we've just been following the circus. And I feel like every three weeks or, you know, we're going to get another. He's going to say something stupid to another world leader. It's just going to it's not going to end. It's going to be kind of like a freak show. And I just don't have the energy to follow it. And the saddest part is it's going to affect real lives. This is the other caveat. Fifty percent of that country, they are in joy today. Yeah. So it's like we're coming at it from this sort of like doom and gloom. But there's a lot of people that are very happy. Yeah. I mean, there definitely is a sense that. You know, with, with the Democrats and the, like progressives, the, you know, the progressives really champion uh, minority groups, like whether it's Hispanics and blacks or transgender gay people and try have tried to lift them up rightly so. But these poor, like rural white people who have been left, who have all who have been left behind, they're, they're sitting there in the middle of the country sort of being laughed at by, by li- big city liberals. The one group that is okay to openly mock in America are poor white people. You know, another thing I thought about was in the whole summer, uh, Trump was campaigning across America in, in, in like filling arenas, like in Youngstown, Ohio and rural Pennsylvania. What, and, and Hillary wasn't doing anything. And I think the strategy was that, okay, let's let Trump just go on out there and put his foot in his mouth and, you know, and we'll just stay out of the way. We'll like, you know, what's like, what's that expression? Like let, if somebody's like, if another candidate, yeah, let him hang themselves, let him hang themselves. Mm-hmm. But what they didn't account for was like, uh, you know, the power of live, the, all those people that like that saw Trump at those rallies didn't care that like he lied a bunch of times or that like the New York times called him out on that sexist thing. He said, they don't care about that. They got to see them with their own eyes and connect with this guy and feel part of something. And that I think is more powerful than than any like expose that the that the Washington Post has on like Donald Trump's like charity givings or misgivings. Sure. Yeah, I, I mean, sort of my last thought on Trump, uh, and I guess for one of the reasons that I am sort of like bummed out on one level is I feel like for the last year we've watched Trump and you know people like Kellyanne Conway or Corey Lewandowski like just lie, just blatantly lie and like spout mistruths and sort of work the system in a way that was so dishonorable and they won. And what you would hope in like the movie version is that in the end, Trump isn't rewarded for his behavior over the last year or like a lifetime of being shitty to small business owners when he's building his hotels and all of this, this track record stuff that sort of has proven he's not a great dude. In the end, he won. He was right. His crowds were huge. The people came out um, and he's a winner and you can't take it away from him. Don't it's just a bummer to have to get behind that. Like the thing what I loved about the Obamas is that they were such an admirable family. They are such an admirable family. You know, it's like they have the best values. They Like Obama comes from a community organizer uh, background. His wife's from the south side of Chicago. It's like they're a true like American dream story and... Trump is not. Trump is like the like literally the opposite of that. He is kind of the American dream. Like, I mean, his father made money and then Trump obviously was born on third base. side he had a triple. But again, that's like part of America's story. Capitalism and then passing on to your children and keeping wealth in the family. The problem is he just doesn't feel like a genuinely good person that gives a shit about anything other than his own prospering. There's an elitism to him that I think is in direct sort of conflict with what his supporters are expecting. Um do we want to pivot away yeah, and let's get, talk let's get about uh, yeah. Christopher Ward? Yeah. So Christopher Ward is our guest. Uh, for our listeners, Chris Ward uh, was one of the original VJs on Much Music. Roommates with Mike Myers uh, came up with him. Chris Ward not only was a VJ that interviewed countless people like Paul McCartney, George Harrison, Bon Jovi, but he also wrote Black Velvet by Atlanta Miles, which is a huge, huge hit. So he's written music like throughout his whole career. And I was excited to talk to him because he's kind of- How old like, is he now? Like 50s? Older? Yeah. yeah. Did he seem to still have that glow in his eye? Oh, yeah, man. I Like, I, it was such a great conversation. So the night before I got to interview him, they actually did this gathering of all the old school Much Music VJs, and it was an open bar. So Shane and I go to this event. Chris is talking. He's promoting this book he has called 
Is This Live, uh, all about the early days of Much and City TV. It's all very, very uh, cool and interesting from sort of the early days of this sort of rock and roll channel that was super iconic here in Canada. So we go to this thing and it was an open bar. We ended up having a little bit of fun. <laughs> and a part of me, though, because I've been reading this book and research, and in those old days, I felt like they all kind of like partied and kind of did all these really fun things. And so a part of me was kind of like, yeah, I got an interview in the morning, but I could stay out for a few drinks. <laughs> I feel like it's uh, it'd be an honor of the book in the good old days. Or <laughs> like how you're justifying it to yourself. Yeah, big time. But uh, <laughs> no, it was great. And then I yeah, made it in and uh, speaking with Christopher, he couldn't have been uh, cooler and open. And he just you can tell he loves telling stories. Good. I and, like this uh, kind of guess. Yeah, I enjoyed him. And afterward, because I, I blasted through the book, he was like, you really read the book. And I was yeah. like, because he's an interviewer himself. Are right? you a fast reader, Mike? I can go pretty quick if yeah, I get into it. That's good to know because uh, when this show really takes off and you're, we, we have like high-end authors and stuff on, you're going to have to do a lot of reading. I I'm it. a very slow reader. and I'm, I, I won't be able to help in that department. <laughs> Um, yeah. So, uh, Chris ended up being great. And, uh, when he was like, Oh, you read the book. I was like, I had to, man. I'm like, you're the master. I can't sit down and, and half-ass this interview. You guys want to get to Christopher Ward? Let's get to it. <laughs> Did you end up, uh, out late or? No, I didn't. I was very... St- sensible and <laughs> responsible but still it, it was a day that started at 6 30 so oh right <laughs> yeah yeah oh it was great i mean you know what more could you wish for you write a book and people are actually interested in it <laughs> <laughs> how long did it take you to write the book um a couple of years and then there was another year of you know sort of odds and sods and editing and fixing and so on and design and all of that but yeah basically it was a two-year span Mm-hmm. You mentioned that you, were, you know, you every conversation you had, you're not talking about much in the old days. It, like, what was the catalyst for you to actually like? Because it's a big undertaking to write a book. Yeah, it is. <laughs> well, I'd never done nonfiction before. I'd written three works of fiction, um, so part of it was just the challenge. And it just there were just triggers in conversations where somebody would say. Oh man, you know, so much of the what we did is gone, or the, it's not in the tape library anymore, or there's just bits of things on YouTube, or you know, we're gonna forget all of that. And it, it it started to affect me, and I started thinking about the fact that there is a legacy there that really should be preserved. And then once I started, well, you know what it's like. You start a project, and then it begins to get its own momentum. Yeah. Did you find that, like, everyone that you talked to was excited to talk about those times? Almost everyone. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, there were only a couple people, and I don't really even know their reasons, and I didn't pursue it. Just for whatever reason, they kind of, you know, people who would normally get back to me didn't. But there was was a tiny number. And I think of all the artists in the country that I wanted to talk to, the only one that I couldn't get was Sarah McLachlan. Interesting. But I have a feeling... She's one of those artists who goes in phases where she's in a work phase, and when that ends, she's in a family and maybe a creative phase, and it's like the off-duty light is on, and I totally respect that. Yeah. In the forward, um, Mike Myers talks about you guys auditioning against each other, or I guess auditioning <laughs> yeah. for Second City, yeah. um, and you getting the gig over him. It's um, a little weird, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Well, congratulations, by the way. It's, it's a, it's well. a um, well, what's interesting to me is he also mentions that you were 32 at the time. Mm. What were your aspirations, I mean, as far as like sort of comedy and performing at that time? Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> at that age, what were you thinking? Um, you know, I mean, I, I'm a musician. I'm a songwriter. And, and I, you know... Had a career up until that point as a songwriter, and I've been signed to Warner Brothers Records. And yeah, you'd had an album out. Yeah, I'd done a couple music. of records and yeah. so on. Um, but my career hit this gigantic brick wall. I went on a tour, and everything fell apart. And I was signed to an independent label that went bust. And then the guy who was like, you know, doing the production sued me, and it was the band fell apart. It was just one of those like moments in your life where you just got to pick yourself up and dust yourself off. So. I just thought, okay, well, I might as well do things that are, you know, like career development stuff. And, you know, I started taking, like, dance classes, and I started doing improv classes at Second City. And they came to me, and they said, would you be interested in auditioning for the, for the touring company? And I thought, why not? 
And then so you just went for it. Yeah. When you take like an improv class, do you, do you like take to it right away? Are you like, ah, oh, this is for me? Or was it just something as a creative person and artist that you're like, ah, oh, I can sort of do this and I'll pursue it? You know, I wasn't a great improviser. I'm too much of a planner. I'm, you know, maybe control freak. I don't know. <laughs> Let's say, what's in those notes? <laughs> but, um, you know, it was just a challenge. Uh, you know, to get on a stage with four or five other people and some chairs, and that's all you got. You got no script, you got nothing. And just to have to use what the audience gives you. And I'd done some theater sports stuff too. Actually, Mike and I, and uh, do you know a comedian named Sandra Shamus? I don't know. Oh, she had a fantastic show called My Boyfriend's Back and There's Gonna Be Laundry. Um, <laughs> anyway, we had a theater sports team called Two Penguins. Um, so, you know, I was kind of interested in that and I just, I thought it was a, you know, it's a developmental thing to do. Right. Try it. <laughs> <laughs> I've done one improv class and I found it, um, it was fascinating. It, it, like you said, the control thing, it's weird to sort of, um, not sort of know the path and just sort of have to make it up as you go along. Well, that is the challenge, to let it go. Yeah. To be prepared to just take that leap. And some people are inherently better at it than others. I mean, I was in a company with Mike, who obviously is a master of that, um, Ron James, yeah. who's just an incredible improviser, and Deborah McGrath, all these people who just, you know, improved circles around me. But I learned from, from being on stage with them. Yeah. Um, City Limits comes along. Yeah. And you were reluctant at first, but this seems like, <laughs> like, I mean, the opportunity to me, you know, it's like, it seems like it would be amazing. Basically, you were going to get to do what you want. Why were you reluctant? You know, John Martin, who w was the producer of the show, um, executive producer, uh, came down to see my last show at Second City, in which I got a pie in the face. <laughs> A ceramic Elvis bust, <laughs> and um, Do you still have it? No, it broke. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry to hear about the king. Yeah. Um, so uh, he came down and said, uh, uh, "Christopher, I got something. Come to my office on Monday morning." Or and that was that's like a big statement from John, right? How'd you know him from before? Like, uh, <laughs> it's a weird story. I want to hear it. Um, well. I was living in this house with six people on McPherson uh, Avenue. We called it the Chateau de Gonzo, <laughs> and uh, after Hunter S. Thompson. And uh, I used to work at the Riverboat Cafe uh, on Yorkville as a dishwasher. And my friend and I would come back from working at the dishwasher. He, he worked the coffee machine. And um, we would sit in the kitchen and just sort of decompress and listen to tunes. And John was having an affair with one of the women in the house. <laughs> So he would come by, he'd come down the alleyway, he had an apartment on Young Street, he'd come down the alley behind McPherson and come in the back door, and we always had the sliding doors open, and he'd come into the kitchen, and before he went up for his nightly assignation, <laughs> he would have a beer with us. So that's how I knew John. And it was just one of those, ah, Christopher, how's it going, John, you know, kind of relationships. And then uh, he came down and, you know, he. He, and he was determined I was going to do this. I was determined in some ways not to because I was, I was ready to go back full on into my music career. Right. And I had started developing my then girlfriend's career, Alana Miles. Yes. And that was a long process, but that was the beginning of it um, right around then. And um, the idea of doing television was just like, eh, I, I didn't watch television. I didn't care about TV. Why would I do it? And he gave me two very good reasons. He said... Well, you need the money, don't you? I'm like, yeah. He says, well, you can do anything you want. Hmm. <laughs> so yeah. it was just the creative freedom was kind of too much to resist. And he was right. I did need the money. What do you think he saw in you? Well, he'd seen me in Second City, so he knew I could improvise. Right. He knew me as a musician, so he knew that I had a passion for music. And a lexicon and sort of like a yeah, I had knowledge. The, the knowledge yeah. background. Yeah. And maybe that was it. But you know, John, he didn't overthink things. It was all instinct with him. So if he was trying to think of somebody for this all night show that he and Moses were cooking up, he'd go, um, ah, Christopher. Or maybe he'd seen me that afternoon. <laughs> you know, and it just, I was fresh, top of mind. I don't really know with John. It was, he was very um, 
impulsive. Sure. And you were the only guy I read as well. There was no one else on it. There was no one else Yeah, Moses was hoping for a stack of auditions. And <laughs> John brought the tape in and Moses went, mm-hmm, yeah, okay, well, what else you got? And John went, no, that's it. No, I want to see the other auditions. Well, there aren't any. <laughs> it was one of those. And I guess John managed to persuade him that I was worthy. Yeah. So, okay, so you get the show, and like you said, you have this sort of immense creative freedom. What's going through your mind? Are you like, okay, I'm going I'm to do these characters, this is the format, or did you just sort of show up and, and let it roll? You know, he hired me, and we were on the air within a couple of weeks. Mm. Um, he introduced me to two people, Michael Hayden and Ann Howard, who were absolutely instrumental in that show, and then who became the senior producers at Much. I know Michael Hayden a little bit. When I, when I started here, he was yeah, a writer-producer, uh, all of on-air, so he was a little bit of a mentor for me. Yeah, well, Michael is a brilliant man. Um, and, and Michael really, I don't think it's widely known, was responsible for the look of much. Really? Like the aesthetic? Like every... Yeah, I mean a lot of the show openings and you know the sort of things like that. Um, and uh, you know, and he worked with um, uh, Gord McWaters. The two of them had a lot to do with how the station ended up looking. because. You know, there was the M. I mean, we had to have the sort of corporate M. But after that, it was all bets are off. And it, it had a really wacky kind of aesthetic. And it suited who we were and what we did on air as, as well. Mm -hmm. um, but um, as, as to what we did on City Limits, it was just a, you know, a nightly discovery process. I, I mean, you know, I'd never done anything like this. And not, neither had any of us because it didn't exist. So they didn't want to build a set, so we just sat in front of the equipment in a couple of chairs and the people with their backs to the camera beside me, you know, the technical director and, and the G5 operator, yeah, working away. And I don't know why, but I started to just include them. I guess it felt weird to me that they were there and potentially in the shot and they were these silent hulking backs, you know. <laughs> So I'd start to talk to them and just start up conversations and then, you know, talk to Simon Evans who was, you know, taking requests or, you know, the camera person, whatever. And it just had this organic thing. And then from there, we'd get in and sort of plot what we were going to do each week. And we got bored with being in that little room. So it was like, well, why don't we do the show on the roof? Or why don't we do the show, you know, on the fire escapes in the back alley? or on the street and then, and then as soon as you're on the street and people are coming by and they're going hey, hey man all right you know yeah then you bring them into it and it just it just kind of went from there it was a very natural process when much starts to take off you know over a million subscribers pretty early on do you feel that something's happening like do you feel like it's becoming big and are you getting recognized more yes absolutely um, that happened pretty quickly, and and it, and it happened way uh, quicker than they thought it would. You know that that huge uh, subscriber base, and the enthusiasm that went with it. It was something special, and I I don't know that you can anticipate. I mean, you sort of think, yeah, I got a good idea, or you know, people will like this, but you don't really know until you throw it out there just exactly how they're going to respond. And then we started doing little outings. We would do like trips to places. And once you were in different communities across the country, because Toronto's a media-savvy city, sure. but other places, they don't see people who are on television. And we used to go to the small towns and stuff, and the feedback was outrageous. It was just, I mean, the people were so passionate about what we were doing that you're going, hey, it seems like we've become a part of people's lives hmm. and something that means something and something that's valuable to them. And I never forgot that. That always drove what I did on air. And maybe in some ways, you know, like 25 whatever years later, it was part of what drove me to write the book. Just remembering the connection that we made with people all over this country. Right. What's interesting to me is, so you're a songwriter, you're a musician, and now you're in sort of entertainment journalism. As much takes off and you're sort of, uh, you're talking to all of these artists, 
Are you focused on, oh, I, I want to sort of be the best music journalist I can? Or are you thinking, I, you know, I want to keep writing music. I want to do this. Like, what, what's your sort of focus? You know, it's different as an artist to be, like, are you thinking, I want to be on the other side of the mic. I want to be the one being interviewed. I didn't think that. I mean, I'd had a go as a recording artist. And as, as I mentioned earlier, it ended disastrously. <laughs> so I was more at that point focused on developing Alana's career. So yes, I was hungry to do something as a songwriter, but that was a parallel process. It's like a duality to that? Yeah, I didn't see that one conflicted with the other at all. And I wasn't, you know, sort of jealous of the people who were successful or, or you know, building their careers. I, I'm sure I learned some things. And, um, well, as, as Randy mentioned last night, I used the fact that I'd been on much and, and saw the significance of video to help Atlanta get a deal with Atlantic Records in New York. We did a video demo at a club, used to be called the Diamond Club. Is it called the Phoenix now? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So we got in there and... Um, was it just a straight performance or like you shot it? Yeah, well, <laughs> I had been going to uh, Centennial College and speaking to the, the graduating class each year about, you know, the sort of career day, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and so uh, I called them up and said, hey, um, I'm sure that it would be really interesting for your students to come and see how a music video is being made. <laughs> I just wanted a ready-made crowd, and they came down and they were very accommodating. Of course, there weren't enough of them, so what we had to do was, you know, shoot from one angle and then bunch them, move them all over, <laughs> shoot from another angle. You know, okay, you know the deal. Yeah. Um, and uh, so we made a, a video demo for Alana, and that's that's how uh, that's how I got her deal, and and it was one of those moments that you never forget. I was on a much tour at the time. I was in Vancouver and I got a call uh, from this guy who was the head of A&R for Atlantic. And I don't know if you know the Atlantic history. It was uh, started and run for a long time by a gentleman named Ahmed Erdogan, okay. who's one of the most sort of famous behind the scenes, you know, sort of entrepreneur types in popular music. I mean, he signed Aretha Franklin and Ray Charles and all the phenomenal and all these great jazz artists. Anyway, uh, one of his sort of right-hand men was this guy named Tunj Aram, another Turkish guy. And he called me up and he was like, Christopher, it's Tunj Aram, Atlantic Records in New York. Your artist, Alana Miles. She's a star. I want her on my label. Who's your lawyer? And it was one of those like, oh, this is hi. <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> hold on, I'll get his number for you. <laughs> you know, it's just one of those, like, really? Because we've been working at it for so long, you don't expect that, oh, one moment, everything's going to change and the payoff comes. It just happens. Yeah. How was, actually, talking about that time, how was the, the writing process with her? Did you guys write together? Did you sort of write the songs and present to her? What was the working dynamic there? All variations on that theme. Gotcha. We wrote some things together. Sometimes she would have a, a song that she'd started and she wanted to, you know, have me come in on it. Um, Dave Tyson, the producer, was a co-writer on a lot of the songs. Um, I wrote the majority of them um, because I'd been working and writing things for Alana during the development stage. And it took us a long time to get her career going. I mean, it was like seven years before she got a deal. Wow. Yeah. Was she becoming frustrated with the process? Uh, yes. <laughs> we were living together. <laughs> Every day it was like, when am I going to have a record deal? Right. I'm like, I'm working on it. <laughs> you know? I can imagine that is like a, a pressure-packed situation where it's like your girlfriend and you're also developing her career. Oh, do you think? Yeah. I mean, what was the dynamic like there? I mean, that's kind of... Well, let me give you the example. We broke up while we were making the record, so... But you know what? We stayed, we continued to work together. And I think in many ways rescued the best part of our relationship, which was the creative part. Interesting. Yeah. In your experience as a, a veteran interviewer who's interviewed many of the world's <laughs> biggest stars, what makes a great interview? Uh, the ability to listen in the moment. To really pay attention to what that person is giving you. You can prep as much as you want. And I, I was a huge believer in preparation. They always joke that I was, do you know who Brian Linehan is? 
he was a guy who had had a TV show, an interview show here, and he was like the creme de la creme of all interviewers. Didn't someone spoof him? I feel oh, yeah, like... he was spoofed on SCTV. Yes, yeah, okay, they yes. Him, they called him Brock Linehan. That was it, yeah. Okay. I don't think he liked it. Anyway, <laughs> he was a master uh, of the form, and um, he was known for interviewing Hollywood stars and saying that, you know, now I know that when you, you know, went to preschool at uh, Circle of Children on Montana Avenue in Santa Monica in 1956, you know, you tripped over a bicycle one day and that proved to be, you know, we had, we had the most ridiculous detailed stuff, right? So they used to tease me that I was like the rock and roll Brian Linehan. I wasn't, but I did prepare. And I think that gives you that bedrock where you can relax because you know you got lots to talk about. You got lots that you want to know. I think the other thing too, now I'm rambling a bit, sorry, um, is I, I felt there were two mandates to satisfy in a way. One, I had to ask what the fans wanted to know. So if I'm interviewing Peter Gabriel, it's like, well, what do Peter Gabriel's most ardent followers really want me to ask? And then the other part of it is, where does my own curiosity lead me? What do I really want to know? And the combination of the two, I think, makes for a good interview. Hmm. Um, when you would work with like producers, I mean, did you prep all your own questions? Yeah. I mean, what was the process like back then? Was it like you present them to a producer, or was it like you just had free reign? <laughs> no, there was no producer involved. <laughs> um, what we would do is, well, when I say this, it just sounds like so prehistoric. It's like the Pleistocene era of rock and roll. <laughs> um, you know, there's no internet. I know that's hard to fathom, but there was a giant uh, filing cabinet, this rickety old metal cabinet, and that's where the artist um, files were. So if I was interviewing, you know, Tina Turner, I just steal the Tina Turner file overnight and go home and spend the night listening to the music and working on my research and and come back the next day and do it. No, none of it was ever vetted, ever. Right. Yeah. That's crazy. You mentioned in the book that uh, interviewing George Harrison was like a holy shit moment for you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you grew up a Beatles fan? Totally. You're not allowed to talk about this interview. It might happen. It was like sort of put off for a week and then he was sort of coming in. You were doing it live. What's going through your mind? How do you prep? Do you go, I want to ask every Beatles question in the world. Walk me through that thought process. Well, yes, I did want to ask every Beatles question. I mean, I could have probably been still interviewing him. <laughs> you know, and it was in 1988, I think. Um, yeah, that was a challenge because there was so much that I wanted to ask. But also, you know, when artists, you know, whether they're sort of heritage artists like that or whether they're just brand new, there is, um, you know, a set of priorities that the label will set. And they'll say, well, look, you know, you, we want you to talk about this new record, or we've got this tour going on, or we just came out with a new video. They want you to focus on certain specific things. Was there any don't asks? With George? Yeah. No. That's interesting. It was the uh, tangent. I interviewed Pete Townsend, which was another huge one for me, because I grew up like just a massive fan of The Who. And he had just put out a record about... It was based on a children's story by Ted Hughes called The Iron Giant. Yep. And he had done, I think it was a stage show, and he'd done a soundtrack album, and he had all these different artists, like Van Morrison was on the record, and John Lee Hooker, and all these people. Um, and But it was a children's story, and it was a fairly narrow part of his you know, career history. And I was told, here's the good news. You have an hour with Pete Townsend. Here's the bad news. You're only allowed to talk about the Iron Giant. For an hour. <laughs> For an hour. No, that can't be true. I mean, in the, in the end, he, he um, mentioned the who, and I, so that was a swinging door, and in I went. Um, but with George, um, you know, there were some current things to talk about, but it was, he was very, very gracious and forthcoming. And for a person who has, you know, been drowned in media since he was a teenager. It's always crazy. He was 27 when the Beatles broke up. Like, imagine accomplishing all of that by 27. Crazy. It's outrageous. Yeah. Um, one of the things I love, too, is when you go to interview Paul McCartney, your passport is expired. Oh, man. And you still go to the airport. What happens if they don't let you on the plane? 
That's a very good question, for which I have no answer. <laughs> like, does the interview just not happen? You know what? It was a John Martin moment, because I, I, he, the interview came up on very short notice. Um, McCartney was prepping for this tour called Flowers in the Dirt, which is the name of his new album that he was doing. He'd written some songs with Elvis Costello. Yeah. It was like a coming out for him, because they hadn't toured since the Wings tour back in the 70s. So this was a big deal. And we were invited to go over and we would see a rehearsal. It ended up being a full production rehearsal. I mean, lights, sound in this gigantic sort of airplane hangar sized facility. He was doing the jokes on stage, like in between the songs. Like a stage banter. Yeah, it was crazy and there were only three of us there. <laughs> there was like me and the cameraman, Dave Hurlbut, and then uh, Nick Jennings from McLean's. We, then they, put a, they rolled a couch out for us put us in the middle of the room and we watched our own private McCartney show. It was crazy. And to think that I nearly missed it because my passport wasn't up to date. Yeah. But, um, well, I had to come back and confess to John the next day. I said, I just pulled out my passport. And it's, he goes, oh, Christopher, don't worry about it. It'll be fine. I just, you know, you'll figure it out. That was John's mantra. You'll figure it out. Yeah. That was the answer to anything. And I thought, well... I mean, this was, you know, before heavy, heavy airport security, but my strategy was that I went into the airport and I looked at the row of all of the uh, airline agents who were going to be checking my uh, ID, and I looked and I found a young one, and I thought, I'll bet she's a much music watcher. So I went up, this is, this is sad that I had to do this, but I was desperate. <laughs> I think it's genius. Well, <laughs> thank you. And um, so I put down my, and she looked up and I knew that she knew me from much. I mean, because that was like, you know, like 89 or something. So we, you know, we'd really found our place in the country. And uh, she said, oh, oh, you're working much music. I said, yeah, yeah, I'm going to England. I'm going to be interviewing Paul McCartney. She's like, oh, really? And she's like, flip, 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 stamp. <laughs> and she has me back. I'm like, <laughs> okay, done. Except for the fact that when I got to, you know, uh, Heathrow, there were like three other <laughs> security layers to go through, and they did not watch much music, and they all waved me through. Yeah, they could have put me back on the plane. Yeah. So you mentioned um, a Paul had written with Elvis Costello, and I thought it was fascinating in the book uh, that your interview with Elvis Costello was uncomfortable for you. It was mm -hmm. not a good interview. Um, one of my first interviews was with uh, Scott Weiland from the Stunt Temple Pilots. Oh, how'd that go? It was a nightmare. He, it was all one-word answers. I burned through my questions in like five minutes, and then I had to tap dance for like the last ten minutes. He was eating a, a, a grilled cheese throughout the whole thing. It was just—it was very fascinating to like. So I was wondering what goes through your mind when you're sort of in an interview that maybe is awkward and you're not getting anything back from the subject. Fuck. <laughs> um, yeah, you're right. You're trying to rescue it. You're trying to think. You know, instantly, is there another path in here? And he's just such a curmudgeon. <laughs> and the other thing too was that he had his new wife with him and she was just behind sitting on the hotel bed because we did this in the hotel room yeah. at the Four Seasons. And he was constantly like turning around and you know like making like little private jokes with her and stuff. So it was really an uneasy setting. And he just like threw some questions right back at me. Like he clearly had no interest in answering certain questions. Well, I think I've already proven that. I've mm. shown you that. Or uh, just, you know, full on, here's a brick wall for you to run into. Um, and I felt really physically uncomfortable. I was doing a series on songwriting and I thought, what a golden opportunity to ask a guy who, you know, is one of the most prominent uh, contemporary songwriters at this point. And, uh, and he knew that that was part of the deal. He was prepped for that. He had a guitar, which was great. But he was all, you know, ah, this is like taking a child's toy apart and, you know, grumble, yeah. grumble. But he did it, and he did a brilliant sort of, you know, expose of his process. So, I mean, in the end, I got what I wanted. But it wasn't until I was screening stuff for the book, and I hadn't seen that interview in, you know, 25 years or however long it had been. And I looked at it and I went, no, this is brilliant. Because it was Costello as you would always want him to be. Just as irascible and tough and, you know, abrasive. Um, so you get a full blast of the personality that we all knew and loved, you know. Elvis totally on brand. Elvis on Elvis, exactly. Yeah. And, um... 
I just saw it in a completely different light. It's weird, huh? Yeah, totally. Well, it's, it's, it's interesting, too, how you can sort of uh, carry an experience like that with you and think, oh, it's such a negative thing, and he was an asshole. And then you look back and you go, oh, no, like... He was on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to talk a bit about uh, Mike Myers. Why do you think your relationship has lasted so long? Well, we really made a connection in the Second City Touring Company. Um, we both loved rock and roll. And, well, as he says in the Ford, and I'd forgotten about some of this, he's got an amazing memory for detail. I mean, have you seen his book, Canada, the new... I, I knew I haven't read it, but I, I saw that he came out. Well, when you read it, I mean, first of all, it's hilarious, as you'd expect. But it's just very heartfelt and incredibly detailed. I mean, he remembers minutia from his childhood. And I, I don't know how he does it, but he did the same for the foreword that he wrote. And I, um, I used to have a Walkman, and I would make compilations. And I remember making a Clash compilation that was his favorite. And then... So I, would, I got a splitter for the headphones so that he could listen at the same time. And so, you know, we just bonded and hung out. And, and then, actually, he ended up living in an apartment with Alana and me. So, yeah, the three of us shared an apartment in the How village. was he as a roommate? <laughs> he was great. Messy? I, you know, and I don't remember. <laughs> well, we were probably all messy then, you know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's funny. Um, so... You know, those affiliations and those connections that you make with somebody when you're, when he's, you know, he was very young, um, they last, right? Yeah. Well, obviously, and then his sort of trajectory was massive. When you're sort of following along, are you still tight with him throughout all of that, like SNL and then the films? Yeah. Well, what had happened was, you know, my career had broken because Black Velvet became, you know, a billboard number one. Massive, yeah. And Mike was just like so proud of me and because you know he knew Alana so well because we'd all live together and he'd you know he'd hang around when we were in the studio all the time and he was so he was part of the story and um yeah um I guess and and he's a very loyal guy so when he started doing these movies you know he asked me to be in the band and the Austin Ming Powers yeah. pictures yeah and Ming T and all that I mean there's way better guitar players than me that's for sure but he just, you know, he just wanted me to be in it, so. Did you co-write BBC, that tune? Well, you know what, he credited me with co-writing, but it's him. Right. Yeah. Um, lastly, I, I guess, you know, television and even the music industry, like the landscape's changed so much over the last 30 years. What do you think are the positives and the negatives to the way things have changed? Well, um, for an artist trying to find a foothold, um, there are so many more ways to reach your audience, which is fantastic because, you know, a resourceful artist will grab any opportunity that is presented. Of course, the other side of that is the fragmenting of the business where um, the star system has kind of broken down. There used to be a time when you know, if you utilized certain key tools, like you make a great record and, you know, you have a really tight band and a good show and you make a good video, those are kind of the building blocks for your career, right? But now, it's like that's not enough. You've got to have so much going for you. And I, I can't imagine the challenges for a young artist now. That said, um, if they are media savvy, and particularly social media savvy, um, they have opportunities to get directly connected with fans that artists didn't have before. I mean, in, in the days of much, it was actually kind of a breakthrough for artists as to how they would reach their fans. I mean, prior to that, you know, there were music shows like the Midnight Special and, you know, these shows that were basically the band would come out and they'd play and maybe the host would come up and shake hands with the lead singer and go, that was great. All right, you know, and then that would be it, right? That was the interview. Yeah. But then suddenly when music journalism happened in, in this building, the new music was groundbreaking, that show that began in 79, because they would go to, to the acts. They wouldn't wait for the acts to come to them. They were going to the dressing room. They were getting on the tour bus. They were going backstage. They were there at rehearsals, and they were asking all the, the tough questions. And the bands that really knew how to utilize that made a huge splash. Some didn't, 
you know? And parallel now, jump forward 30 years, there are all kinds of other ways for bands to get their message out that didn't exist. Hmm. And as far as television goes, uh, obviously much has changed exponentially since its early days. Mm -hmm. I guess my question would be, do you think, I mean, I guess a lot of it's sort of like you have to change with the times and sort of like chase what will get the most viewership. But do you, you hear a lot of people be like, oh, much isn't like it was. Mm. What are your thoughts on that? You got to grow up sometime. I mean, what we did was like sort of rock and roll adolescent yeah. behavior, you know? I mean, I'm not trying to put us down, but it's the kind of thing you do when you're figuring it out, when you're discovering it. But we, we grew so quickly. And then you have responsibilities, you know? You have responsibilities to sponsors and, and to an audience that has certain expectations. And then you want things to look better and hipper and more sophisticated. You don't always want to look like a, an episode of SCTV, right? Mm. And that's kind of what we were at the beginning. That seat of the pants thing. It can't, that thing can't last forever. You have to grow up. Um, and I think, you know, what much does now, they find so many ways to, to get to, to their audience. Um, there is immediate and, you know, connected in many ways more so than we were. Because I mean, we were in the era of people faxing us requests, right? Of course. How's your fax machine doing these days? I, I sold it long ago. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time, Christopher. My pleasure. Thank you very much. We appreciate it. That was great. The book is so good. Um, I really enjoyed it. Man, the, uh, you've read it. I know. I was like, wow, this guy knows <laughs> the details. All right. Welcome to the desserts. Me, Max, Shane, just hanging out. By the way, um, I really w just want to like gorge myself with like candy and junk food after this uh, Trump election. Yeah. Did you have any urge to get drunk last night? I did, but I had two interviews this morning with uh, Dragonette right. and uh, the cast of the Beaverton. So you have to, you're a good, responsible journalist. That's right. I was on. I was on the, the Hamilton Go Bus at six twenty this morning, pitch uh, dark, doing Lord. my research. Anyway, how many lot of candy tonight, Shane? What's going on? I was in a good mood, and then you, to see you guys so affected, like <laughs> Champagne Boys are literally falling apart right now. <laughs> like oh, they've, that's they've, true. they've left our message group. Grown men are crying. Yeah. Max is just somber. Mike is somber. Yeah. And I'm here at the dessert. I'm trying to find the silver lining in there. <laughs> and I think we need a little shade to it, cheer us up. If there was a silver lining, I think it's that um, <laughs> political correctness. Like, think about it. Like, okay, here we go. No, no. <laughs> Billy Bush got fired. <laughs> Not this. Again. No, no. I'll just say this. You can edit it out. <laughs> Billy Bush gets fired for chuckling at the guy who, like, quote unquote, was joking about sexually assaulting women. Yeah. That man became president. Mm -hmm. Doesn't that just show how it, things are changing? Like people don't really give a shit. About if they did, greatness? they wouldn't vote him as president. Half the country. Remember the and the guy? Yeah. Like he got fired from, let's say, he worked at a cable company. Here in Canada during a soccer game on like uh, local TV, a woman was doing reporting outside a game and a drunk guy yelled into a microphone. and the Yep. And it's just because that became a popular phrase. Like in he didn't Europe. invent it. He was just regurgitating something that was already a popular drunken phrase. He couldn't work at his cable company anymore. It was hydro. Hydro company. Yeah. But a man who's talking about assaulting women can run the country. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's just, I mean, maybe it is a bad thing. Now I'm, yeah, maybe that, that is a, I think a horrible thing, but. That's why people are so upset. But anyway, I was at a baseball banquet guys just to pivot <laughs> oh for our team the uh the heroes of the gamblers yeah max wasn't there though yeah we we had a show and max can i just say too we all wanted to talk about your massey hall show <laughs> okay. on this episode but trump fucking derailed uh, everything that's okay we'll talk about another episode i'm desensitized to max's fame a little bit i find yeah and then you I'm so used to you going everywhere that i don't even say like congratulations on a uh <laughs> But I, oh, uh, this about your Massey Hall show. Was it a did you make a typo in thanking me for your career on Facebook? <laughs> you put me in a in a list uh, of people and I was like, oh, like, oh, did I? 
Yeah. yeah, that was a mistake. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, this makes me look amazing. But yeah, I, I, I won't change it though. Yeah, but, thank uh, you. Okay, cool. I don't know who I was meaning to thank, but you made it. Man. You're welcome. <laughs> Any, anyway, <laughs> you weren't at our uh, team banquet. Is it because you were playing the Massey Hall? Yeah, it was a Friday night. So yeah, Max is one of the uh, best players, if not the best player on our team. And same with uh, Mike, but Mike actually made it out. I came to the banquet. You know, the drinks were flowing. Oh, big time. Uh, we were know. wearing our jerseys under blazers. So we all wore a Pete uh, Rose and the Gamblers, like red and white jerseys underneath black blazers. Your brother, I think, drank two and a half bottles of wine to himself. He had a good time. So people are really drunk, feeling good. We're on the dance floor. And then kind of a weird thing happened is, um, <laughs> you, you know that fishing dance move? Like you're reeling a, a girl or a guy that you like. Yeah. Like I think th- one of the guys from the championship team who kind of beat us unceremoniously in the game we forfeited yeah. in the championship was fishing alex over your wife which he, is fine because he couldn't see her ring from that far away <laughs> but what's not fine kind of is that sh- she was being reeled in like and, she, and it's, an, it's an imaginary line right so it's not like you actually need to be lured over but i'm trying to be like the cool husband so i'm like okay let's see how this plays out and you know 10 minutes go by and i'm Becoming the uncool husband now. I'm like, what the f***? Like, she's not going to do anything right in front of me. <laughs> so, so I walk over and I'm like, hey, what's the deal? Trying to be like tough. And um, that was and, intimidating. And the guy's like, listen, he's like, this is a $500 shirt. I'm like, oh, is this like a situation where the, the boss was telling me at a $1.4 million house or whatever? He's like, this is a $500 shirt. This watch is $1,500 and you see that girl over there and he points to another like voluptuous like Kim Kardashian body type. He goes, that's an escort that I hired for two hours. I'm like, what? He's like, I need to impress my ex-wife tonight. He's like, she's sitting over there. She's on the other team and she's not here with her uh, boyfriend that she left me for. So I'm like, oh, okay. So talking to Alex, he was just using her as like a like trophy and creating kind of like a jealousy trap. Like he was acting like he had an abundance of babes. <laughs> For his ex-wife, who's yeah, on a different team. Yeah, but I team. thought, isn't that the weirdest thing ever? Like, so then did you that's have, so disarming. Did, yeah, so were you like, okay, do your thing. Go keep dancing with her. Were, did you have, were you like, I'm on team you right now? Well, I was a little suspicious. It did not look like a $500 shirt. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I got my headphones on from the minute I'm up to the minute I go to bed. That's it. That's all. That's our episode. Max, you going to be all right? Yeah, I think so. You can follow us at Micah Much on Instagram and Twitter. The artwork is provided by Jenna Gregory. You can find her stuff at jennadoodles.com. Is Jenna's doodle. Yeah, you got close enough. We do it every uh, week. Yeah. And um, huge shout out again to Dan Carruthers, who filled in for me last week. I loved the interview with uh, Mike to open the show. It was great. He's a sweetheart. Yeah. The Mike and Watch podcast is produced by Max Kerman. I'm your host, Mike Veerman. See you next week if Trump doesn't blow us all up on the weekend. <laughs>